says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When, G- when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the Word of God now and the continuance of our worship. Lord, that you'd give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church assembled this day as we open up this particular section of the Word of God and read through it and study it and look to you to speak to us by your Spirit's ministry teaching us and speaking to us. So, Lord, you know what that means for each and every one of us. Please prepare us and please speak to us now through your Spirit's ministry. For we ask together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. During a recent uh, inspection here at our building, as the inspector went around the building, one of the things that he did was push the test button on the emergency exit lights that we have throughout our building here. And as he pushed on that test button, it became evident that due to some weak and dead batteries in some of the devices, that not enough power was being generated in that device to operate properly in its full capacity. And after simply changing out the batteries, fresh power was enabled, and then that device was able to function in the capacity in which it was intended to. And as I think about that, I think in some ways that's a fitting description because the same can be true in a person's spiritual life. There can be times in a person's spiritual life that it kind of becomes evident that there's a lack of spiritual power, that there's a deficiency of the power of God's Spirit in such a way that there's a weakness spiritually and what is needed is to receive power from the Holy Spirit to therefore operate according to God's design to function in the capacity we're supposed to be functioning in if there was an experience of the fullness of the Spirit's power operating in our lives. In fact, in John chapter 7, Jesus himself was speaking about the ideal experience that a person should be having in their life as a follower of Jesus. And as Jesus spoke about the ideal experience of the Spirit in our lives, he spoke of it saying, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus spoke that regarding the Spirit and his work and his power happening through our lives. When Jesus spoke about the ideal experience of the Spirit, work and his ministry he did not speak of the spirit just working within us internally but jesus said more than that beyond that it also should look like an overflow of the spirit rushing forth out of our lives overflowing like a river at flood stage where it's actually overflowing its banks and influencing outside of the river as well and i believe that's probably one of the main reasons as we get these unique snapshots in the book of Acts 
of things that took place within the early church that we probably have this passage in front of us here as well, trying to emphasize the importance of receiving and experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power, receiving power from the Holy Spirit. And I pray our observation and as well as response to God's word today will bring us unto that end. Look with me back in verse 1 as our text opens. It tells us that it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And we know that's came back to Ephesus. We'll talk about that. And when he came, it says he was there finding some disciples. So, Verse 1 opens up really at this point describing another transitional time in the ministry of Paul the Apostle and a transitional time in the work of the Lord among the early church. Chapter 18 described to us the conclusion of Paul the Apostle's second missionary journey. As Paul went around preaching the gospel and planting churches, Acts 18 brings us to the closure of his second missionary journey. He had come to the city of Ephesus, remember, with Priscilla and Aquila. He went into the synagogue as was his custom. He started sharing about Jesus, reasoning with the people from the scriptures. And it appears some souls were converted Some people turned to the Lord to become followers of Jesus and being hungry to learn more of the ways of the Lord. Remember, they then asked Paul to stay with them so he could teach them further about the ways of the Lord. Paul, however, declined their invitation to remain longer because he sensed that the Lord had something different for him to do in that next season, something else to do. So he declined their offer to remain because he desired to obey the Lord. And he left, remember, saying to them, I will come back to you again, God willing. I sense now I'm supposed to head towards Jerusalem, but I do intend and I want to and desire to come back to you. But Paul at that point left Ephesus after a brief time of ministry He traveled all the way back to the area of Antioch where his home or sending church was and came to the close of that second missionary journey. Aquila and Priscilla, who came to Ephesus with him, we saw remained in Ephesus, further discipling some of the new believers there. Particularly, we got a snapshot at the end of chapter 18 of one prominent thing they did, which was to help a man named Apollos who it says was mighty in scriptures and eloquent in speech and who was being used by the Lord, but they helped him to become more effective in his ministry. Apollos was a gifted Bible teacher, but he needed a little further clarity in his doctrinal understanding. And it said at the end of chapter 18 that Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And as a result of that further enlightenment, he became more effective to minister and ultimately desired to go over to the area of Corinth to further minister there. And it says at the end of chapter 18, as Apollos went to Corinth, he greatly helped those who believed through grace and vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. That's why we read now in chapter 19, verse 1, that these events happened while Apollos was at Corinth. That is, Apollos has left the area of Ephesus, gone over to Corinth to minister there. And Paul, it says, verse 1, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now, that's a reference there to Paul's third missionary journey, which started back in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, where we were told after spending some time in Antioch, Paul departed and went in order in the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, 
strengthening the disciples. So that's what this refers to, verse 1, when it says Paul is going through the upper regions. It's those areas that Paul's retracing his steps now as he began his third missionary journey, strengthening believers in these areas he's been in before. And now he comes back and returns, verse 1 tells us of chapter 19, back as well to the area of Ephesus. And Ephesus, remember, was the area that Paul went to briefly in last chapter, ministered a little bit, but Paul didn't stay long term. But as I said earlier, he said to them, I want to return to you and I hope to return again if God permits. If it's God's will, if God allows it, I want to come back here to Ephesus and further minister. And apparently we see now from chapter 19 that it was God's will for Paul to come back once again and minister in an area where he ministered briefly before. The reason, of course, is because the city of Ephesus and the new believers there and the new church that was established there needed some further discipleship, which we will now see in Acts chapter 19 and 20, a record of three years worth of ministry that Paul spends in the city of Ephesus, continuing to disciple people further. Notice it says he came to Ephesus, verse 1 says, finding some disciples. Verse 7 told us that there were about 12 of them in all that Paul found. And this becomes the issue of trying to understand exactly who these disciples were. They may have been part of the new church in Ephesus that was established, or these could just be 12 disciples that Paul bumped into and met within the large metropolitan city of Ephesus. We talked about last time that Ephesus was an extensive city. We can't be dogmatic, but nonetheless, notice what unfolds, verse 1 and 2 now, as Paul finds these disciples. It says, verse 2, he said to these disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now take notice, verse 1 and 2, we're told two at least descriptive things about these 12 men who were, it says, number one, disciples, and verse 2 tells us that at some point they did believe. They had come to believe something at some point. So two things we find here. They're disciples, they're called that, and they believe. The quandary of this unusual conversation is what condition were these 12 men in currently at this point when Paul meets them, that calls Paul to ask such a unique question of them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? One of the things we do know as we look at our word there, disciple, from verse 1 and the end of it, is that term disciple, we've been seeing it all throughout the book of Acts together. A disciple, again, remember by definition, is basically one who is disciplined in the ways of his master one who is learning what his master's teachings are and continuing to grow in his ability or her ability to walk in the same ways as their master. And so we read this word disciple many times all throughout the book of Acts referring to disciples of Christ. That's, that's very evident. We've seen that many times. In fact, one of the best definitions really in the New Testament of what a disciple is is 1 John 2, 6, where there it says, he who abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk just as he walked. And that's a great definition of a Christian disciple. Someone who says they're in a relationship with Jesus ought to live like Jesus to some degree in a greater and greater measure, more and more hopefully that we follow the ways of our master. And so again, for those of us who claim to be disciples of Christ, disciples of Jesus, does our manner of living reflect 
Jesus' manner of living? Does our nature and our temperament and what we say and what we do or what we don't do, does it reflect Christ? That's what a disciple means. Someone who walks in the ways of their master and reflects their master. The question here is understanding what a disciple is generally. The dispute becomes among scholars and theologians and so forth, of which I am not. uh, What kind of disciples were these? In other words, two camps begin to get divided. What state were these men in when Paul meets them currently? Because he asked them a quite unusual question there in verse 2. It says he found some disciples. Were these disciples of Jesus at this point? The kind of disciples we've read about all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And is this another reference to those who are genuinely Christians at this point, who had come to believe upon the Lord, which if they are disciples of Christ, we know New Testament teaching and theology is very clear that they were indeed indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Because the New Testament teaches, and we'll talk about this more, you cannot be a genuine Christian if you've not been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's part of the salvation experience. When you receive Christ and he comes into your life, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God comes within you and now dwells within you. So are these followers of Jesus genuinely saved believers, disciples of Christ who had believed, and that's all it takes to come into salvation, and Paul notes they believed, or... At this point, were they only disciples of John the Baptist, which is referred to as we read further in our text and we'll look at. That is, at this point, they were disciplined spiritually in the way of salvation, which John the Baptist prepared and pointed people towards. And at this point, perhaps understanding John's teaching that Messiah was coming, they believed they needed to repent prepare spiritually, seek forgiveness from the Savior who was coming, but yet at this point are not yet genuinely born-again, spirit-filled Christians, that could be possible as well because the same term disciple that's used here is also used in other places in the New Testament to refer to disciples of John the Baptist. And it's also used as well to refer to some who were disciples of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Look, which is it, you may ask? I want to say the issue I don't think really matters to understand that in the finality of the text. Where the text culminates at is what matters most importantly, the condition of these 12 men described in verse 2 through 4 that Paul meets here is not the primary factor ultimately. What these disciples were when they first met Paul uh, we may not know, and I'm not sure of completely, I don't think we can be dogmatic, but what we do know is what they become by the end of verse 6. That's indisputable. Because by the end of the text, it's evident they're clearly converted to Christ. In verse 5, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They genuinely understand salvation there after a little conversation, and they're baptized again to identify with their salvation in Jesus. And then in verse 6, as Paul lays hands on them and prays for them, they're actually then baptized with the Holy Spirit and start manifesting legitimate gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. So it's very evident where they are at by the end of the story. For that reason, what I want to focus on is the empowering of the Holy Spirit because I want to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's where the text culminates. We can go back and forth. People can try and dispute what exactly they were when Paul first met them. I really think that that's kind of getting 
how do they say that? The lost among the trees in the forest or that kind of a thing? Rather than focusing on what's the central issue? The central issue is where they end up in the end of verse 6, that they've received a powerful experience. And so I want to move through the first verses a little more quickly and make some application where we can, but I'll allow you like a Berean to have the freedom to come to your own perspective. And what matters most in the spiritual life always is this, not what we were, it's what we have become and what we now are and what we're becoming forgetting what's behind reaching forward towards what's ahead what's important is where they're at now and where we're at now in our own spiritual life so paul spends some time with them as he meets them and the holy spirit in verse 2 records this very interesting question paul was compelled to ask them he says to them after interacting with them did you receive the holy spirit when you believe now what would compel paul to ask such a question of a group of disciples at this point. Likely, he noticed something had to be missing from their spiritual lives. Paul was a mature Christian. He was a spirit-filled man. He had interacted with many different believers as he went around ministering, and he discerned something was lacking in these 12 men's lives spiritually, that there was some deficiency that he could see existed in their spiritual life. Maybe he sensed a dullness to their spiritual life. Maybe there was a dryness in their spiritual fervor. Maybe Paul kind of recognized uh, that there was just an absence of enthusiasm about the Lord Jesus, that they liked to talk about things intellectually, spiritually, but maybe he sensed there was a lack of life, maybe a lack of genuine love coming from their hearts, which is supposed to be the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe a disinterest in wanting to really serve the Lord. Whatever the case, he discerns something's lacking and it appears they're sincere spiritually, but still something's missing. Something's missing from their spiritual life. And for application for us, perhaps that might describe where you're at if you were honest in your own heart this morning. Maybe this morning where you're at, you look at your spiritual life and if you were genuine, you notice something seems to be missing. Maybe you sense in your own spiritual life kind of a, a, a dryness there. Maybe there's a dullness to your spiritual life. Maybe there's an absence of real enthusiasm and fervent passion for the Lord Jesus. Maybe there's a real lack of love that exists in your life. Oh, you can theologically ramble off ideas or maybe even quote Bible verses, but maybe there's a real diminishing or an absolute absence of real compassion and love and care for people other than just talking about spiritual things intellectually. Maybe there's a lack of desire to really serve the Lord. And maybe within you there's a longing for more, that you do desire more power that you desire more passion for the Lord and maybe it's a good opportunity to just search your heart and soul in light of that this morning because it could be one of two things. Potentially, maybe you lived a semi-religious life and have a, somewhat of an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, but maybe you really don't know Jesus personally. Maybe you know things about Jesus, but maybe you've never personally in your own life had a genuine personal encounter with the Lord Jesus yourself where you've come into a relationship with Jesus and invited him into your life to be savior of you personally in your sin and let him become Lord over your life and had a spiritual encounter where the spirit of God came within you and made you alive spiritually. And maybe that's never happened. 
And that needs to happen in your life. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you're absolutely certain that you're saved, but you you still sense a, a dullness, a dryness to your spiritual life that you wish wasn't there. And perhaps you still need something more of your relationship with the Spirit. Well, I think this text speaks about how that can come to pass. So Paul asked this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Look how they answer verse 2. They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So these 12 men called disciples, they answer the question very humbly and very sincerely. They're just honest. They say, to tell you the truth, uh, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit before. We're not certain exactly what you're describing. Now, either again, one of two things is happening. If they are indeed Christians at this point who have genuinely experienced salvation from Jesus, certainly we can see there's a definite immaturity in their understanding of theological concepts about the whole process of salvation and the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Perhaps they're just ignorant to all aspects of what that means and what really happens when a person gets saved. Maybe they just heard very simply the claims of the gospel in a raw form that we're all sinful and sinners and it makes us guilty before a holy God. But God loves you and he sent Jesus to come to this earth and Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead and Jesus wants to forgive your sin. And if you turn to Jesus and ask him to save you, he'll forgive your sin and he'll give you the gift of eternal life and you can go to heaven after you die. And they heard that and in a simple, sincere way, they exercised trust in Jesus and received him and they did not even know or weren't even aware that at the moment they were saved and experienced salvation that the Holy Spirit came inside of them and now that they had the Spirit of God living within them and maybe that's why they say in verse 2 we didn't hear anything about the Holy Spirit we heard about Jesus but we didn't hear anything about the Holy Spirit and let me just say from my own personal experience in some ways I think that's possible because I can relate to that in my own personal conversion story I didn't grow up within the church. I wasn't raised in any way with exposure to the word of God. I spent my entire life. Nobody ever talked to me really about Jesus or the ways of the Lord. Had a best friend that got saved in high school. Thought he flipped his lid, but he made me very curious. He continued to love me and pray for me and witness to me. And little by little, I understood more of this relationship with Jesus thing. And eventually, I came to the place where I clearly heard that I was a sinner and that Jesus was a savior and what he had done for me on the cross and that he rose from the dead and that I needed Jesus to save me and forgive me and I wanted to follow the Lord in my own life and I turned to Jesus and when I received Jesus, I can tell you with all sincerity, I knew nothing about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All I knew is I'm a sinner and Jesus saved me. Forgive me. That was all I cared about. It was all I, honestly, it was all I knew at that point. I heard the gospel. I didn't understand anything about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer or many of the multitudes of the doctrines of the New Testament scripture. I had a lot to learn. When I got saved, Genesis was a rock group. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, sincerely, I knew nothing other than that Jesus loved me and he saved me. That was all I understood. That was all I knew. So I can understand how maybe they could be saved. We never heard about the Holy Spirit yet. Is this something, and they just didn't know yet. 
Or again, if they're not Christians, it's obvious why they would be confused as well, that they didn't maybe know the full story yet of all that Jesus did beyond John the Baptist's ministry and John pointing to Jesus, and they didn't know that Jesus sent back the Holy Spirit after he ascended into heaven to be a helper for those who are followers of Christ, and maybe they hadn't heard some of all Jesus taught in the fullness of the message of the gospel of salvation. Either way, they're obviously genuinely confused and there's a there's an ignorance if you would a, a ignorance regarding the fullness of the person and work of the holy spirit whatever condition they're in and and look even to this day unfortunately the same really exists by and large i find there's a lot of genuine ignorance and lack of understanding about the person of the holy spirit and the ministry of the holy spirit even among the church and i want to encourage you Develop your biblical understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit. In the same way you want to know God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is just as much a part of the Godhead and the Trinity and just as vital and valuable to the relationship that we have between us and God. And we should want to know the Holy Spirit in the same way we know Jesus and the Father and what the Scripture teaches about him. Paul, no doubt, being puzzled over this answer, goes on in verse 3 saying to them, Well, into what then were you baptized, he says. And they answered, Well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ. So these men claim, hey, we participated in John's baptism. That we can tell you. And we do believe the things that John said. And think about John's baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation. Remember, that's what John's baptism was. It was a baptism calling people to get ready for the reception of the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah that God was sending to them. And so people were to repent of their sin and they were to ready and prepare themselves and be looking ahead to the Savior that God was sending. John said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then when John, remember, later saw Jesus, he even pointed out Jesus, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Paul here reminds them of what John's baptism was and even maybe enlightens them a little further, pointing people towards Jesus ultimately. He said, John baptized with repentance, verse 4, he said, that people would believe on him who was to come after him. That is on, he says, not just the Christ, the Messiah, but Christ Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, who was indeed the Savior. It would seem these 12 men, whatever the case, were maybe kind of much like Apollos that we read about in chapter 18, that for lack of opportunity or maybe further instruction, there was just still some gaps in their understanding of spiritual things. And so Paul wants to help fill in the gaps a little bit in their life through John's message. To some degree, they believed in the way of the Lord. But Paul wants to fill in some extra details and further enlighten them to make sure they have a full grasp on salvation and what salvation through Jesus Christ means, describing what that fully is and who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is, and even probably to inform them, we don't know what the fullness of the discussion was, that Jesus, before he ascended, said, look, 
I want you to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to help them understand that Jesus also said that we need the Holy Spirit and the Father, Son, and Spirit all participate in spiritual conversion and the the thing of walking with the Lord. So as these lights are probably now coming on inside of these individual and they're understanding a little bit more fully, their faith is being illuminated. That's why verse 5, it says, when they heard this, they were then baptized, now a second time, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So with further clarity and strengthened belief, they now desire or Paul recommends that they would be baptized again to identify fully with the work and salvation of Jesus Christ. It says they were now baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, baptism being that outward identification of the inward work of salvation that came into our hearts. And so these men at this point certainly are now soundly saved. They're now dwelt with the Spirit. They have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no question where they're at at this point. These are believers, and the New Testament teaches that when you are saved by Jesus, you are then indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So they now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, They are now genuine biblical New Testament Christians and they're now baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus to demonstrate outwardly their salvation. But verse 6 says, And when Paul had then laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Circle that word, upon. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So Paul lays hands on these believers praying for them, or we might say praying over them. This is a biblical picture. Many times they would lay hands on people as they prayed for them. The idea behind that symbolically is is a picture of just, we just pray the hand of the Lord would be upon you in these things that we're asking. So Paul lays hands on them. He's praying over them. And as he's laying hands on them and praying for them, it says the Holy Spirit came upon them. The Greek term there, epi, E-P-I in the original language, means to come on top of or to overflow with influence. That's the idea of our word upon there. Here again in the book of Acts, it's not the first time, we see this experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer's life, coming upon the believer in greater amounts of influence to overflow and to control to a greater degree. That's the idea of the preposition that's used there, signifying what I see in Scripture, the third of three possible experiences a person can have with the Holy Spirit. The third of three experiences someone can have with the Spirit of God. Jesus himself declared three different relationships or experiences a person can have with the Holy Spirit. And he used three distinctly different Greek prepositions when discussing those things to clearly delineate between those three experiences, representing each one of them. The first two of those experiences are referred to in John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, Jesus was speaking to his disciples prior to his death on the cross And right before he ascended back into heaven after his resurrection, and he's starting to tell his disciples, look, I'm going to be departing soon. I'm going to be going back to my father in heaven from where I originally came. He knew after he resurrected, he would be ascending back to heaven. They were getting nervous, but he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. 
I'm not going to leave you like orphans. Understand, this would be a terrifying thought to them. For three and a half years, Jesus was really helpful. He taught them what they didn't understand. He fixed all their problems. He provided everything for them. He protected them. He led them. He guided them. And now Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And they're thinking, we're done. How are we going to make it without you? Your presence with us is the only reason we stay out of half the trouble that we do. How are we ever going to live for God if you're not with us? And Jesus, wanting to encourage them, said to them this in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. He said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. The term there in the Greek is another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. Another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Take note, first of all, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, he uses personal pronouns. He will be with you. Repeatedly, he uses personal. He doesn't say that the Spirit is an it or an essence or a force. And many people wrongly have this concept of the Holy Spirit. It's like the force is with you, Luke. And, and we have this idea like the Holy, and we refer to the Holy Spirit as if he's an it or an essence. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the person of God, just like the Father is the person of God, the Son is the person of God, the Spirit as well is God, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we should relate to him as a person of the Trinity in how we have fellowship with him. And Jesus says two things regarding the Holy Spirit's experience that are available. He says of the Holy Spirit, he says he dwells with you. And secondly, Jesus said he will be in you. Here's two of those experiences right there defined in John 14, verse 16 and 17. Two of the three different Greek prepositions used by Jesus. He said, the Holy Spirit dwells with you. The word with in the language is para. It means alongside of or right next to. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit with every human being on this earth. The Holy Spirit is with para alongside of next to every person walking on this planet. And prior to being saved and becoming a born-again Christian, the Holy Spirit is with us trying to convict us of sin, trying to draw us into a relationship with Jesus. He's trying to do things to intervene in our life, and He is with us. Remember the Bible says, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the Spirit of God is with a person in the world before they're saved. John 16, Jesus said he's trying to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So one experience we can have with the Holy Spirit is that he's with us, next to us, alongside of us, trying to convict us of our sinfulness, trying to convince us that we should follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. But Jesus secondarily says in this same text, he also will be in you different term and he says that's coming future he will be in you en in the greek which means to be inside of to enter in and to indwell and that happens at the moment a sinful person in faith acknowledges their sinfulness to god and invites jesus christ as their savior for their sin into their life to be the savior and lord over their life 
And when we pray and receive Jesus, when we receive Jesus, we simultaneously receive the Spirit who then comes inside of us. Jesus knocks on the door of our heart, we open the door, and Jesus comes in the form of the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. The Bible teaches that in the New Testament, at the moment of salvation, you are indwelt with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? Romans 8, Paul told believers there, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. That his Spirit bears witness with our human spirit that we're now children of God. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know that. That experience where I remember when I first got saved, again, knowing nothing. I knew nothing at all except that Jesus needed to save me and I had just asked him to save me. But I also instantly sensed within, I know that I know that I know that I know something just happened. And it was evident that his spirit was bearing witness inside of me to my human spirit. You're a child of God now. Something changed inside of you and it's because the spirit of God came inside of me. And he now lives within you and I as believers, indwelling us. And it's the Holy Spirit indwelling us that helps us to walk godly, to overcome sin, to become more Christ-like, to walk in the power of the Spirit. He assists us to pray and have a relationship with God. But Jesus also spoke of a third of three experiences that we could also have with the Holy Spirit beyond him being with us prior to salvation and then inside of us after salvation And that's, I believe, what verse 6 refers to here when it talks about the Holy Spirit came upon these believers. You might want to jot in your notes Luke chapter 24, verse 46 to 49, because there Jesus speaking to disciples, his followers, after his death, after his resurrection, after having breathed into them, John chapter 20, where they received the Holy Spirit and were genuinely converted, And Jesus says to spirit-indwelt converted believers these words in Luke 24. Thus it is written and necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he said, you are witnesses of these things. Listen, he said, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. There's our word again, E-P-I. Same as in our text here. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So referring to this role the disciples would now have to go and preach the gospel to all nations in the world, and Jesus looking at those 12 disciples and going, wow, that's going to be a challenge for them. Jesus, seeing their insufficiency as human beings, knowing their weaknesses, speaks about a third of three relationships or experiences someone can have with the Spirit that is greatly needed, that he wouldn't just be with us and within us, working inside of us, but that he also could come upon our lives in an overflow of power to bring us under the greater control of the influence and the power from on high, enabling us to be dynamically endued with supernatural power from heaven, from on high. Remember at the beginning of our study in Acts chapter 1, we saw this as well. Believers there were waiting in prayer for this promise of the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus said to them there, do not leave, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Same term again. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, Jesus talking about this experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples' lives who were already spirit-indwelt, genuine Christians, he said, wait until you are, Jesus called it, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he said, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power. Dunamis is the Greek, a dynamic power, a dynamite-like power to be a witness for Christ in their service and what they were doing. They would come under the influence of the Spirit, bringing them into a place where they were further empowered and enabled. Referring to what I believe, and many do as well, the availability of a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit even beyond salvation. Something that is available even beyond the salvation experience of the Spirit coming upon our life in greater measures, with Jesus himself often called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And we see this happening throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, Jesus talks about it. Acts chapter 2, it says the believers there were filled with the Holy Spirit and it changed them. In Acts chapter 4, as they're starting to serve the Lord and minister, it says they get persecuted. And then it says they pray. They have a prayer meeting. As there's all the prayer meeting, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. They already have the Holy Spirit. But it says again, they were filled again with the Holy Spirit and then spoke the word of God with boldness. As we go throughout the book of Acts, chapter 8, we saw the Holy Spirit come upon a group of believers there. Acts chapter 9, Paul the Apostle, at the commission of his ministry, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit as Ananias laid hands on him and prayed for him. Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching a sermon. And before he's done his sermon, the Holy Spirit falls upon everybody in the room and they're baptized with the Spirit. He doesn't even get to finish his sermon, poor guy. And now again here in Acts chapter 19, verse 6, there are believers which are clearly converts at this point and it says Paul lays his hands on them in prayer and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Again, the purpose of this experience of the Spirit coming upon our life we see in the New Testament is for greater empowerment in the Christian life which is often much needed, whether it's for works of service and ministry, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And we need the power of heaven, the power from the spirit to be effective in ministry. We need the power of the spirit at times, sometimes to overcome a struggle that we just can't get beyond. And sometimes it's through that empowering and baptizing with the Spirit as we're filled that we're able to then overcome in a greater dynamic. Oftentimes we need the power of the Spirit like Acts 1 where Jesus says for greater boldness because we're struggling in our Christian witness and we're afraid to live boldly for Christ in our workplace or among our fellow students or with our family or we're afraid to open our mouth and say anything about Jesus and it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that gives us a boldness to be more confident and less fearful. It's this experience with the Holy Spirit that gives an outpouring, I believe, of God's love in a fresh way in our life because, again, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is 
love. Love. Somebody tells me they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. What I'm looking for is a very loving, sacrificial person because the fruit of the Spirit is love, first and foremost, and a new love that's compelling them to want to minister to people. Here in verse 6 of Acts chapter 19, notice how the experience was received. It says Paul was laying hands on them in prayer. And throughout the book of Acts, multiple times, chapter 8, chapter 9, and here in chapter 19, it's when people were laying hands on people, praying for them, that they experienced this coming upon of the Holy Spirit. But wait, Acts chapter 10, it just says the Holy Spirit fell upon believers there when somebody was just teaching a Bible study and nobody touched anybody. People have been not put their hands on me. We don't have to. We want God's hand to be upon you. That's whose hand we want to be upon you. And notice the effect of it. It says the resulting experience, verse 6, it says that those who had the Spirit come upon them began to speak with tongues and prophesy. That is, two of the spiritual gifts began to be manifested through their lives. The speaking with tongues, which is a New Testament spiritual gift of the supernatural ability to pray or praise God in a language you don't know to go deeper in your communication to God, to edify your personal spirit. Acts, or 1 Corinthians 14 describes this. And it also says that some were prophesying. And prophecy is to speak forth a word from God, where God gives you in some way a brief message, a, 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 something that he wants you to share as his instrument to convey his heart to someone or to speak his will. 1 Corinthians 14 says, He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. Not condemnation, intimidation, no, edification, exhortation, comfort. As the Holy Spirit gives you a prophetic word, maybe to speak a word in season to someone who may be weary. So the gifts of the Spirit are beginning to operate through their lives as the result of this experience. And sometimes we see when people had this experience, they spoke with tongues. But I'll tell you this, study your entire Bible and through the book of Acts, not every time that the Holy Spirit came upon people did they always speak with tongues. Not on every occasion. And look, I think that's purposeful. God never seemed to allow this to be something that could be a set pattern that was formulized. Because that's what we all want to do. We want to create a formula for how the Holy Spirit works and what takes place and, and therefore then we you know, get all up in arms and dispute with people. Honestly, the Bible does not allow us to establish one set pattern of what happens when somebody is baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, you got to do this to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You have to have our elders or our anointed people lay hand. Then you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit because we'll confer to you our anointed... The Bible doesn't cause a pattern. Nowhere in the Bible can you genuinely prove that every time someone was baptized with the Holy Spirit or had the Spirit come upon them, that they always spoke in tongues. Well, if, you're not, if you don't speak in tongues, then you must not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. My answer to that is, you're not very loving, maybe you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I don't say that because I don't believe in the gift, because God's given to me that. I, I do pray in tongues in my personal time alone with the Lord. I just don't think that's loving to try and create some pattern that's not biblical we can't set a pattern and let me say this in regards to considering these things for us i'm not concerned so much with what you call it the baptism of the holy spirit the filling of the holy spirit getting ghosted you can come up with any term you want whatever you want i don't care 
I'm not concerned necessarily with how you receive it. People lay hands on you and pray, whether you get alone with the Lord. I'm not even concerned what happens as a result. Do or don't you speak in tongues? What I'm concerned with is, are you experiencing it? Is this your experience? Because it's what God wants for us. To have the power of His Spirit upon our life. I know you're here this morning and most of you know Jesus. And you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, therefore. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, working within you. However, can I challenge you in light of the text? Can you say of your relationship with the Holy Spirit that He is flowing forth from your life in power like rivers of living water? Can you say this morning that perhaps you sense a need for greater boldness in your witness for Christ? Do you sense, Lord, I need a greater boldness in my witness for you as a Christian? Are you here this morning and maybe you desire to see more of God's love in your heart and coming out of your life? Maybe you sense a dryness in your spiritual life, a dullness in your spiritual walk. Maybe you're here and you say, man, I am just struggling with something I can't seem to overcome and I need power, Lord. I need power from heaven that I just can't find. Lord, I need a greater dynamic. Or you say, I want to experience the gifts of your spirit, Lord. I want to experience the gifts of your spirit operating through my life. Can I just encourage you? Maybe the Lord just has something more for you in your relationship with the Holy Spirit. And if you believe it, why not receive it? Nothing weird's going to happen to you. Are people afraid of Jesus? Oh, if I just ask Jesus to overflow my life, he might do something weird. Are people afraid of God the Father? Why are people terrified, other than maybe weird things they've seen, of the Holy Spirit? They're all one. Jesus doesn't make us do weird things. The Father doesn't make us do weird things. The Holy Spirit of God is not going to make you do something weird. We shouldn't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We should desperately acknowledge our need of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I need your power. And look, the Bible says Jesus is the baptizer, that he's the one that baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. So my encouragement to you is maybe this morning is an opportunity as you stand before the Lord to say, Lord, I believe this. And I do sense a need. And so, Jesus, I'm asking, would you baptize me with your spirit? Lord, what that's, Lord, would, I want that to happen in my life. And tell the Lord. And believe in faith and receive what he has for you. If you want us to pray for you after the service, we'd be glad to lay hands on you and pray for you if you desire that as well. And just to ask that the Lord would work according to his word.